When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, executive coach and founder of Outlast Consulting, Jared Simmons. Hey, what you drinking? Okay, so I feel like we can just jump right into this because everyone already knows what this is about. We're going to jump into a conversation that I am really excited about because this is someone that I met. It was almost like a cold call where... I'm connected to like 150,000 people on LinkedIn. And, you know, every now and again, we'll, we'll say, let's actually have a real life conversation. And we did that. And I really enjoyed the conversation. And the more we talked, the more it seemed appropriate to bring this conversation to a, an episode of Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. So with that, I want to welcome Jared Simmons into the room. Come on in, man. I'm excited to have you have you here. Oh, man. Thank you so much. I, I, I'm i just excited to, to have this conversation. I, I enjoyed our first chat as well. And, and when you told me the name of this podcast, I thought somebody's playing a prank or something because <laughs> there's no way <laughs> somebody has the same three passions that I do. So I'm, I'm excited about this. You know, the more I have gotten to know you, the more I have determined that you and I might be joined at the hip. Uh, <laughs> you, you might not be able to get rid of me when you start talking about some of your favorite jazz musicians. Before we get into this conversation, which I, I just know is going to be epic, I've got one question that I've got to ask because this is I'm just dying to know. What you drinking? Ah, I'm gonna preface it. This is the end of the end of the run. I, I need to make a run and re replenish. So what I'm drinking is uh screwball peanut butter whiskey. Have you have you had that? I think I just got a taste of that literally a couple of a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's interesting. It was a gift. Um, not something I would have picked up, but uh, I keep it around because uh, it's perfect in Coca-Cola. You know, in the South, Coca-Cola and peanuts go together. That is down home Southern uh, goodness right there. 
since you're going to play with that, you know, one of the things I understand is that one of your favorite whiskeys is um, Hibiki. I'll tell you, I got an interesting story about how I was introduced to Hibiki. It must have been, I don't know, five years ago and uh, was out in California for a business that I was uh, getting ready to launch. And uh, we had a great day. And so we went into this bar and we said, you know, hey, look, let's just cut to the chase. What's the best whiskey you got back there? (laughs) (laughs) And the guy brought out uh, this bottle with a weird name on it. He said, yeah, it's Japanese. And he brought out Hibiki 12. 12-year-old mm. Hibiki, mm-hmm. and we sampled it, and that was some grown folks stuff, but boy, I tell you, I really liked it, and so I came back home and went to the store, and there it was right there on the shelf, mm-hmm. so I said, let me go ahead and pick some of that up and, and keep it, and I kept drinking, and I kept replenishing it, and oh my gosh, this is really good. It's becoming one of my more favorite drinks, and then, and then all of a sudden, I find out that there is several different ages. Yes. So Hibiki 17. See, so, I, I didn't know the age on that because that's what I was poured. That's what I had. Gotcha. And, so uh, so there's yeah. the Hibiki 12, which is more of like a scotch. Good stuff. Right. Hibiki 17, which is more of a, you know, it's more, more of a smooth whiskey-like, still in the Centauri family. There was also a Hibiki 21 that I saw once that just mm-hmm. scared me when they told me how much it was. And I, I said, no, I, I can't commit that much to my wife. <laughs> and so I didn't get it. And, and now I hate that I didn't because they don't put the age derivations on the bottles anymore. I, I'm nursing this one because once it's gone. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> so let's go ahead and jump, jump into this Hibiki 17. Mm, man. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to let you do what you do, and I'm going to enjoy this, but I would love for <laughs> you to share just a little bit about your background because you've got, I mean, we, we've connected on so many different elements. I mean, from your coaching business to your background, uh, got some Southern roots, uh, a little deeper South than, than I've gone, but, you know, appreciate the Southern, the Southern heritage there. Mm. So just would love for you to just share with the audience a little bit about who you are and uh, a glimpse as to why I might be so excited about this conversation. All right. I am born, raised, educated in the, uh, the great state of Alabama, including the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. I am an engineer by training and went into the world of work, fully intending to work for 30 years as an engineer and, and retire got into the world of work and found that the business problems I thought were so complex were nothing. And the technical problems that I thought were so complex were nothing compared to the intricacies of people and how people work together and how they make decisions and how you lead and organize and manage people. And so I spent 10 years in, at Procter & Gamble in research and development doing all sorts of R&D things, technical modeling, you know, market research, all these things. Uh, but really getting more and more curious about how people make decisions and how the people at the top of the organization not only made decisions, but made things happen. So kind of trying to answer that question led me through to uh, to McKinsey and Company, general management consulting. And I got to experience a lot of different industries, 
a lot of different types of business problems uh, looking to be solved. But the through line through all of those always, again, was how do people make decisions and how do they organize people to take action on that? Wanted to get some sleep. So uh, I left management consulting and went to back into industry to Coca-Cola to do some product development, product design work. Again, heavily technical, uh, a lot of market research, a lot of finance, a lot of technical aspects to the, the, the product itself involved. But again, the interesting part was how do, how do you organize these people and how do you get them to do what you think is the right thing? And how did you decide what the right thing to do is? Finally, after a few years there, I decided to leave and, and form my own uh, consulting firm, Outlast Consulting. And uh, I've been doing that for about five years. And what we do is we, we help businesses solve the toughest business problems using innovation principles. And when people hear that, we, you, know, you think certain things, but the heart of what we do is professional development and coaching, executive coaching. We use processes and tools, management consulting principles and tools and processes to help lock that in. But the change happens, as you know, in hearts and minds of people and capabilities of people. And so that's what we focus on. We're focused in innovation and in product and in uh, diversity right now. That's at the heart of what we do. And what, what gets me excited uh, every day and uh, outside of whiskey and jazz. But I think that's in a nutshell kind of my career and, and what I do. I've got a podcast called uh, What is Innovation? And it's really, again, at the heart of we keep using this word uh, innovation all over the place. But until you understand what it means to the person that's using it, you can't organize people around it and you can't you know, make decisions effectively. Oh boy, that answers that answers a lot of questions, and just really brought out a lot more connections, uh, such as you know the that we both spent time at the Big Red Machine. Oh yeah, that is that's a shared experience right there. You know, and and, and I have heard it said, and I absolutely believe it to be true that time spent working for Coca Cola is almost like getting another graduate degree because of the process, the philosophy, the focus on information and mm -hmm. leveraging information, they really do require that you come the right way, especially right. on my end where I was really customer facing. And so there was this expectation that almost Procter & Gamble like that you would be buttoned up with information. So I, right. I again, just really raise my glass to you on that <laughs> and appreciate that you've got a little sprinkle of Coke in that because I'm not putting Coke in my hibiki. Oh, no, please don't do that. I'm sorry, I'll tell you, one of the other things that you just shared in your background that's got me really interested is this idea around questions, because I am literally in the process right now of taking a, a course, an MIT course with Hal Gregerson around oh, this wow. idea of catalytic questions. And as a coach and as a consultant, you know, I've really been enamored by, and you just said it yourself, how if you're not careful, you can spend hundreds of hours trying to solve a problem, come to find out you're solving the wrong problem. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you got a solution. Exactly right. Congratulations, is... you got a solution. Yep. But that's not the real problem. That focus of this class that I'm taking, and I, I want to get your perspective on it, is mm -hmm. how do you try to ensure 
that you're asking either the right question or that you're asking at least an important question? I think I like the distinction, the right question and an important question, because sometimes the only way to know you ask the right question is to ask it and to start down the path. But I think you can know that a question is important in in advance. Understanding what an important question is, is all about understanding what matters to your consumer, your customer, your leadership team, your peers, other functions. It's an almost an alchemy. People like to talk about being consumer focused, consumer driven and all those things. And that sounds great as a bumper sticker or a, a quote. But at the end of the day, if you can't win hearts and minds of the sales organization, if you can't win the hearts and minds of the of the supply chain team, you're going to miss. You're not going to get it right. Uh, you're going to solve the wrong problem or you're going to start solving something that's important to the wrong people. Mm, I love that. Wait a second. Hold up. Back up. <laughs> <laughs> you need to say that again. Let's talk about that again, because we can solve important problems. But the question might be important to whom? That's exactly right. And that's the part that so many very smart, very motivated people get wrong and end up not moving the way they want to move in their career or not having the outcome in the in the marketplace that they'd want to have. It's just the lack of understanding of, you know, important to whom. And, and that whom is not one person. It's not one stakeholder. You've got to optimize. You've got to solve the problem. You may do, deliver something suboptimal for the consumer, but getting that to market, but that's what you could get to market. And that's what you could get to market the right way. And instead of being 100% for the consumer, it's 90%. But in shooting for 100, you know, falling on your sword for that 100, you're going to end up not being able to get time on the line to, to even run the product that you need to make. There's so much compromise in this business. And that's why I love... Part of what I love about jazz is when you're creating music, uh, jazz, it's all about listening and it's all about reacting to what you're hearing. And it's all about it's important to be consumer focused, but not necessarily solely so. Yeah, I usually try to come to this jazz metaphor because, as I've said several times, I love jazz literally, but I also love jazz metaphorically. Mm. And it's just this idea that in jazz, it's not haphazard. You, you don't have people just playing, just blowing hard and moving their fingers, right? There, there is a framework. My last episode, you guys need to double back and check out the conversation that I had with Aaron Dickey because he surprised me with a surprise call in to Craig Holiday Haynes who is the son of Roy Haynes, who is the legendary drummer who at one point, maybe even still today, but at one point was noted for being the only drummer to have played with all of the iconic vocalists and Mm. jazz musicians. I mean, very literally, you name them and he played with them. Mm. And uh, Craig Holiday Haynes is amazing as well. He's named after Billie Holiday. And he's got relationships with all these folks. And so in my conversation with him, he brought out the fact that his father and he were the first drummers to break away from drummers just keeping the beat 
And they started exploring what are those half notes? What are those half rhythms? What are those, what's the syncopation that they can sneak into still being on beat? Right. And so for me, the metaphor of jazz is I've got somewhere I've got to get to, but how I get there is up to me. I just got to get there on time with the right note. You know, I've got to be in key. You know, at this point, the creativity that I use, the expression that I use is up to me. Now, you're more than just a jazz enthusiast. (laughs) (laughs) Because you actually study jazz theory. So help me with my analogy. Help me out. No, (laughs) I love your analogy. I think, and I've picked up jazz theory in the last five years. I was classically trained piano and, and vocals growing up. But jazz theory has always been something that seemed out of reach for me. And, and I just I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get a teacher and I'm going to learn this. And uh, what I've learned in exploring jazz theory is, is that through line, those chord changes that are written just up at the top of the, of the ledger, those chord changes are their signposts. You can go as far afield as you want to go in that measure, in that bar. But when that bar ends, you know you need to be on this B flat seven. <laughs> and, you know, you can go wherever you need to go during, while you're on that B flat seven. There's probably eight, 10 notes you can use. You can go wherever you want to go. But when that bar ends, you better be. There's structure, but there's freedom in it. And, and Bill Evans always said, what we look for is freedom with responsibility. That's what's missing from a lot of the leadership and professional development work today is the, it's the responsibility piece that actually provides the freedom. I've got somewhere to be. I've got, you know, I've got these launches that need to happen. I've got this team that I need to manage and we've got these milestones, but overstructuring and over preparing and over dictating uh, as a leader crushes that freedom. And so the responsibility feels oppressive as someone that's being led. Uh, but if you can get that freedom with responsibility, everybody's got the space to be creative and they've got the blueprint to be productive. Uh, that's what gets me excited about jazz because. You put this sheet in front of some in front of four guys or ladies and and, you know, you don't have to know each other. You just you know where you have to be and when you have to be there. And everybody just takes their responsibility and owns it. I love that freedom and responsibility or responsibility within a framework. I love that because I've seen leaders go the opposite way. They are so focused. They appreciate the responsibility and they're so focused on, I've got to say it this way. I've Mm -hmm. got to follow this plan. Uh, I've got to do these things and tilt my head to the left when I say it. (laughs) Right. And yeah, I appreciate the responsibility, but again, you still don't have the magic because there's no freedom there. There's no expression. This doesn't feel real. Uh, Who are you really? A big word that was kicked around quite a bit, I think, over the last decade. It's starting to quiet down just a little bit now, is this, this word authenticity, because I don't know who you are. Right. There is a balance there. How do you know how to, or how do you encourage people, leaders, to find that balance, to recognize the responsibility, but go ahead and show a little bit of your personality? Uh, and y- you've worked for some of, the, some of the more iconic companies in the world. Uh, the Coca-Cola company, I often tell my friends, if you ever hear that the Coca-Cola company is out of business, then that means the entire world is going yeah. out. <laughs> right. We're, we're about to shut this whole thing down. That's right. right. You got much bigger problems. We got bigger problems than the price of a, of a, of a six pack. Uh, you know, the other line that I've heard frequently is that 
no one's ever gotten fired for bringing in McKenzie. And you've yes. and you've actually spent time in both places. So mm -hmm. talk to me a little bit about what that responsibility looks like for you and how you encourage people and leaders to still embrace that freedom, still embrace that personality that they that they mm. bring to everyday situations? Oh, that's an amazing question. Bringing the word authenticity into that was perfect. When you think about freedom with responsibility, the only way to achieve those things is through some level of authenticity and being uniquely who you are, because that's what freedom is, right? So what I find is in cultures like uh, through PNG and there's LPNG, Coca-Cola, McKinsey, there is a premium on performance and everybody's good. They spend a lot of time, a lot of effort making sure that everybody that comes through the door is good. And what I find is that there are people who assume that there is a there is a version of good that gets you to great. So you have to be this kind of good to get to great. You have to talk this way, look this way, think mm -hmm. this way, communicate this way to get to partner or to make director or VP or what have you. But your path to your great can't go through somebody else's version of it. And so that's the freedom with responsibility. That's the authenticity that I think gets lost sometimes is you have to find out what your best version of you is. And those companies are so obsessed with performance. When you perform, your you know, development areas, your quirks, whatever, become delightful eccentricities that just inform who you are. You look at senior leaders in these organizations, there are a lot of different kinds of personalities, a lot of different types of people, but the fear of not doing the right thing holds people back from being able to do the great thing that they're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So personally, I'm an introvert and I got a lot of advice early in my career in all three places about how you need to show up. Year one, it's you're too quiet. You need to speak up in meetings. Year three, it's Oh, he's great. He only speaks when he when he has something to say. You know, it's very powerful, blah, 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 things like that. So we miss those things for introverts, for people of color, for other folks that do not fit the the majority norm. We often miss, you know, the power in our uniqueness. That I think is what, you know, when you think about the titans of jazz, you don't think about, oh, they're they're all the same type of cat. Thelonious Monk and Bill Evans can't be any more different. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but they are their own versions of great. That's the piece that I think when I think about across those three cultures, the people that make it or don't make it. The question is, do, are you going to embrace, you know, your version of great? Ah, I, I love that because that has an implication on the individual. So, you know, my story, I think I've, I've shared this story a couple of times already that uh, when you are in corporate America for as long as you and I have been mm -hmm. as an African-American, in order to be successful, you get really, really good at dampering what you can do in order to make the people around you feel comfortable with who you are. And that's the formula. When you're young, at some point, you figure out, hey, wait a second, if I just play at 80%, first of all, I don't have to play as hard, Right. And second of all, everybody loves it. I'm just going to play at 80%. <laughs> exactly. What if I can get by at 75, right? <laughs> 75 work. How about 70? The problem is if you do that for so long, eventually, my dad used to say, regardless of your bravado, 
you look into the eyes of the person you're playing against and you know in your heart of hearts whether or not they're better than you, right? You know. And so after doing that for so many years as an African-American, you lose sight of who you really are and you lose sight of of what 100% might even look like because you've been so far away from it for so long. And so the individual loses. And then on the other side, the company loses. Right. The company really hasn't gone for all they could go yet. They haven't encouraged everyone in their organization to go all out. You know, my conversation with KP Westmoreland, we we talked about, he brought up this topic about there seems to be this unwritten rule in corporate America that it that if you play golf, you're never supposed to beat your beat your boss. Beat your boss. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> right. So you've got yeah. this culture of no one ever beating their boss. And you're wondering why the organization can't grow. That's causing me to wonder, and I'm going to ask a former McKinsey dude, how do you create a culture where everyone is going all out? Mm-hmm. Everyone is giving their all to meet the organization's objective. So we're, we're not talking about the wild, wild west where everyone's doing their own thing, but everyone is giving it their best. Samultra Goshal talked about this idea of creating a culture where the smell of the place is one of stretch. How can you encourage organizations to allow their people and encourage their people to go all out? That's an important question to ask. And I don't think it's being asked very often. That's the first time I've ever been asked that question. I would bet it's not being asked very often in boardrooms or or, uh, executive offices around America. Step one is be enlightened enough to ask the question. I think step two is to understand that stretched looks different for different people and to be able to allow people to push themselves in the space that produces growth for them. And so, and so what that means is to be, be more innovative, be more creative as you think about professional development and to decouple. It's so easy for us to combine career progression career advancement and professional development in the same conversation. The first thing you have to do to talk, talk about being stretched is to decouple the two, because I'm sure you can think of, I can think of assignments that had nothing to do with me moving vertically in the organization, but they stretched me to grow and prepared me so that when the opportunity to move up came, I had that skill set that I needed to be successful. That's the key to the culture is a lot of times in a lot of companies that I've worked for and supported don't really understand that difference between, well, we want this person to grow, so we need to figure out what their next assignment is to get them to the next level. That's not necessarily growth inducing. It can be growth inhibiting to be advanced too quickly. I'd love for more people of color to have that problem. But I think right now the challenge is, what does stretch look like? What skills does this person need to build on and demonstrate? Really more people are focused on assignments right now. And that's and feel like they've had the professional development conversation because they've had the career progression conversation. And so that's why I think growth, the culture of growth starts with decoupling those two conversations. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests, and show exclusives. Cheers.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.